Gresham College presents Modernizing Parliament: Reform of the House of Lords by Vernon Bogdanor, FBA and CBE, Gresham Professor of Law. For braving the cold weather to uh, come today, and I see some people are still very wisely wrapped up in coats and scarves.、Um, those who came last time will remember that、um, uh, the event.、Uh, Took the form of a conversation between Jeff Hoon, the leader of the House of Commons, and myself on reform of the House of Commons. Well, I fear that today you'll have to put up with me alone,、uh, but talking upon a related, complementary topic, indeed, the question of reform of the House of Lords, on which a lot of ink has been spilt、uh, in recent years. Now,、uh, most modern democracies have not just one chamber of Parliament, but two. And there are some countries which have one,、uh, and just one house. New Zealand is, is one. Denmark and Sweden are two others. But the characteristic of most of those countries that have just one chamber is that they're very small and fairly homogenous, and with a long history of political agreement. Now, if you look at countries which have been democracies for some period of time, that is for about at least 25 years, the largest country which has just one chamber. Uh, in its legislature is Portugal, and that has a population of 10 million. But every democracy that has a, a size of over 10 million people, and that's been a democracy for some time, has two chambers of government. But uh, every country uh,、um, that has two chambers—thank you very much. I'm just recovering from a cold, so I need some water.、Uh, every country that has、uh, two chambers has a great problem. Of how you're to select the second chamber, the upper house, if you like, and I think we all agree、uh, how the lower house should be chosen. We all think it should be directly elected by us, the people. We may disagree on the electoral system, whether it should be first past the post or some form of proportional representation, but we all agree it should be directly elected. And the House of Commons. Lower houses generally represent a very simple principle of representation, namely the representation of individual people. Now, what about the upper house? What alternative principle of representation can we find to choose the second chamber? Now, that's a question that's fairly easy to answer if you live in a federal state, like the United States, where the country is divided up into states. Because、uh, obviously, as well as the federal government in the United States, you have state governments in New York State, Kansas, Texas, California, and so on. There are 50 states. Or in Australia,、uh, where you have the、uh, state governments of South Australia, New South Wales,、uh, Queensland, and so on. Or in Germany, where you have the regions which are called Länder governments:、uh, Bavaria, North Rhine-Westphalia, and so on. Well, in countries like this, it's fairly easy because. The upper house represents these geographical units. The lower house represents individuals, and the upper house represents territory. So that, for example, in America, the Senate represents the states equally, and、uh, California, which is the largest state, has two senators, and、uh, Utah and Wyoming, which are very small states, they also have two senators each. So, whereas in the lower house you have representation by individuals and roughly equal constituencies, in the upper house you have representation by states. And in America, those states are equal, have equal representation. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that Britain isn't a federal state; it's a unitary state, 
And there are some people, particularly uh, liberal Democrats, who would like to see Britain as a federal state. They say better govern in that way, but we're not at the moment. And we don't have provinces or regions or states in the way that they do in America or Australia or Germany, except perhaps, you may argue, in those areas uh, enjoying devolved government. And some people may have been here when I spoke a while ago about devolution. The non-English parts of the United Kingdom, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, they all have devolved uh, governments. Now, uh, the present Labour government wanted to extend that principle of devolution to the English regions, and they began with uh, a referendum on devolution in the northeast of England, and that was held late last year, about a year ago. Uh, and that was thought to be the area most sympathetic to devolution, but they decided by a rather heavy majority they didn't want it. And so there's very little chance, I think, that we'll have English regional government or any sort of federal state in Britain in the near future. And I suspect if you ask people in Reading or Guildford or Basingstoke what region they belong to, they'd look at you as if you were a bit odd. They don't think of themselves as belonging to a region at all. So therefore, we can't answer that question in the simple way that they uh, do in federal states. And we have to look for something else. Now, if you look at the House of Lords, our own upper house, it's certainly not the product of any kind of constitutional logic, but it results from history. And it's one of a very small number of parliamentary chambers which is not elected at all, but appointed. Now, of long-established democracies, there are only two others uh, with nominated upper houses. The first is Canada. Uh, the second is Ireland, which has a predominantly nominated upper house. Not completely, but predominant, predominantly. Now, uh, the, the, it's fairly recent the House of Lords has been wholly nominated because until 1999, two-thirds of the membership of the House of Lords was hereditary. Two-thirds of the members were hereditary peers. There were about 1,200 members altogether, and roughly 800 of those were hereditary peers. And they were also predominantly conservative. But in 1999, the House of Lords Act, which was passed by the Blair government, removed all but 92 of the hereditary peers from the House of Lords. And the 92 was a compromise with the conservatives. But the vast majority of peers, and their number has increased, the number of life peers has increased since 1999, the vast majority of peers are life peers, and there are now about 700 of them. So you've got uh, 700 life peers, you've got the 92 remaining hereditary peers, You've also got the 26 uh, archbishops, the two archbishops and the senior bishops in the Church of England, and that's a consequence of, the, of Britain being an um, the Church of England being an established church. And you've got the law lords and retired law lords, currently about 20 to 24. They're now being removed from the House of Lords under the Constitution Reform Act, and in the year 2008 they'll be gone from the House of Lords. But the bishops and archbishops uh, will in fact remain. The argument for that is that the Church of England being an established church has considerable delegated powers to legislate and the Church of England can legislate for its own affairs. Uh, but Church of England clergy, because it's established, are not allowed to stand for election to the House of Commons and therefore there must be some channel by which the views of the church can be conveyed to Parliament and government and that is through the House of Lords and the membership in it of the two archbishops and the senior bishops. <coughs> Now, life peerages, as I said, about 700 life peers in the Lords, and now the predominant element. 
They were first brought into the Lords as a result of the Life Peerage Act of 1958, fairly recent really, uh, nearly less than 50 years ago. And this Act also admitted women for the first time to membership of the House of Lords. And since that date, hardly any new hereditary peerages have been created, and I think for practical purposes there won't be any more created at all. So the House of Lords, it's changed. It's in a very adaptive way, if you like a typically English way, because you, uh, if you looked at it before 1958, it was a hereditary and aristocratic institution. But now it's predominantly nominated and contains a number of experts in it, people who wouldn't necessarily get in if they were elected, perhaps wouldn't stand for election, but people with some expert ability to offer, and also, of course, a large number of retired politicians and nominees of political parties. And so the same name hides a very considerable change in composition. And I think you can say the House of Lords in 1950, the House of Lords in 2005, the same name, but utterly different institution. And those who, who are sympathetic may say it's a good example of pragmatic British adaptation. If you're not successful, you'll say it's a good example of old-fashioned British muddle because we don't know really what we want in the upper house. Well, the criticism, the main criticism, of course, of all this is that we've replaced a hereditary system by a system based on political patronage. And uh, that uh, certainly is a great deal of political patronage. And as I will explain later, Tony Blair, in the time he's been Prime Minister, created around 250 peers. Now, they're not all of the Labour Party, I hasten to add, but it does give the Prime Minister a great deal of patronage. Now, um, to mitigate that point, one may say it's only since 1958 that the opposition parties have been granted peerages as of right. Before that, it depended on the discretion of the Prime Minister, but now there's a convention that the Prime Minister will not only nominate members of his own party, but will give a certain number of peerages to the opposition parties, the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats, and occasionally to the other smaller opposition parties. You may have noticed in the recent list, there, were, there was a peerage for the Democratic Unionist Party, Ian Paisley's party, and by chance it happened to be Ian Paisley's wife. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the smaller opposition parties do get some as well. And the purpose uh, of the 1958 uh, Act, the Life Peerages Act, was uh, in, to enable um, more Labour Party peers to be created because most of the hereditary peers, almost all of them, were conservative and they had a tremendous preponderance. It was a, a hugely one-party house and people in the Labour Party didn't, on the whole, wish to take hereditary peerages and uh, they were, in general, opposed to the concept. Now, if you look at 1955, before the Life Peerages Act, the composition of the Lords, there were 597 Conservatives, 55 Labour peers, and 42 Liberals, and 238 crossbenchers, people, independents belonging to no party. So a huge Conservative preponderance. Um, but despite the Life Peerages Act, for many years, until 1999, the Conservatives still had a permanent majority in the Lords because of the hereditary peers. Two-thirds of the members were still hereditary, and the Conservatives were very dominant amongst them. So you can understand why Labour wants to remove the hereditary peers, because many people would say a house permanently dominated by one party is no better than a state, political state, dominated by one party. So that was the argument for the um, reform. And since the 1999 Act, no single party has enjoyed an overall majority in the House of Lords. It's a hung, permanently hung, if you like. 
And indeed now for the first time in history, it's quite striking, the Labour Party is the largest party in the Lords just. And uh, if you want, the state of parties last month before the last set of creations was as follows. That Labour had 210 peers, the Conservatives 208, the crossbenchers 190, the Liberal Democrats 74, the Greens 1, and, and others 11. So um, you can see Labour's just the largest party, but of course without an overall majority. <clears throat> and we've seen a considerable battle in recent uh, months in the Lords, you may have followed it, that uh, the Labour Party has to struggle to get its legislation through, particularly on civil liberties, where the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats have formed an alliance against the government. And also, of course, you have the 190 crossbench peers. So um, there's a genuine, possibly a genuine argument and debate in the Lords, more so than the Commons, where you have absolute majority. Uh, uh, for, for the government and um, many government people say that with legislation they're much more worried about what the House of Lords will say about it than about the House of Commons. Now let's look a little closer at how the life peers are chosen. <clears throat> there are two different ways. First, they're the members belonging to the political parties and they are nominated by the leaders of their parties and the Prime Minister decides how many uh, peers each party should have um, and how often they're to be nominated. Um, he do, but he makes no attempt to interfere with the nominations of the opposition parties. He accepts their lists. Now, secondly, they're the crossbenchers, the independents. And they are chosen now by a House of Lords Appointments Committee set up by the Blair government in the year 2000. And to secure a place under this scheme, individuals have to apply. Now, others can apply on their behalf, but they have to agree to be nominated and selected candidates interviewed and then nominated by the Commission. And the point of that is that um, uh, it's seen that a job in the House of Lords is not an honour so much as a job of work. And it's a, it's a job application that you're going to do the legislative work, play your part in the chamber, not just an honour so you can call yourself Lord and get a seat in good restaurants or good bookings in the theatre, but you have to actually do the work. And there's a lot of talk now about disconnecting the legislative work from the title because there's some people you may want to honour who wouldn't perhaps want to be in the House of Lords, for example, a distinguished musician, the late Yehudi Menuhin was a peer, but I didn't expect he wanted to take part in the day-to-day -day business of legislation, why should he? So why not disconnect the honours system from membership of the Lords? And this is what this commission is beginning to do, that you apply if you want to do the work. Now, the hope at the beginning was that the commission would nominate members of the general public, so-called people's peers. And it's interesting how that phrase got into operation. It's an example of how the great Alistair Campbell was for once outspun because um, uh, there was a press conference with Alistair Campbell discussing this and uh, said he would hope there'd be a broader, broader nominations than the usual collection of people. And a journalist said, I suppose you then could call them the people's peers then. And without thinking, Alistair Campbell said, yes, I suppose you could. Well, of course, that was a mistake because the implication uh, uh, was not lost. And in fact, the nominations have been of the great and the good people of distinction in public life, but people who are independent of party. And if, if you like, the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker haven't been nominated. And I think a false hope was given because of this press conference about people's peers. They're not really people's peers. Now, uh, it's very clear, I think, uh, no one would disagree, the composition of the House of Lords is illogical, difficult to defend on rational grounds. And if you were drawing up a constitution from scratch, I think you wouldn't choose a House of Lords so composed. 
But nevertheless, uh, it does have some advantages. And the first is that it prevents really serious conflict between the two chambers because the House of Lords not being elected does not have the democratic legitimacy of the Commons and therefore must, in the last resort, give way if the government representing the majority in the Commons presses something. Now, an elected House of Lords would cause much greater conflict because they would say, we're elected just as much as you are, and our point of view has just as much democratic legitimacy as yours. But the system we have prevents endless clashes between the two houses. And it's because the House of Lords isn't elected that its powers are so much more limited than those of the Commons. And I now want to discuss what these powers are. Now, the powers of the House of Lords are laid down in the statute in two uh, acts called the Parliament Acts of 1911 and 1949. <coughs> and the Parliament Acts make provision for three different kinds of legislation. And the first is uh, legislation which is called a money bill, that is a bill dealing with the raising of revenue or with taxation. And on such a bill, the House of Lords has no power at all. Once the Speaker has certified, Speaker of the Commons, that is, that the bill is a money bill, it goes through automatically. The House of Lords has no power over it. It goes through in a month automatically. The second sort of bill is a non-money bill, and there the House of Lords has a delaying power. It can delay the bill for one parliamentary session. But if the House of Commons passes the same bill on two successive occasions, it becomes law, whatever the Lords say about it. Now, this um, procedure, the Parliament Act procedure, has been used just uh, four times since the 1949 Parliament Act. And it might be of interest to you to recite those bills. The first was the War Crimes Act of 1991, providing for the retrospective punishment of Nazi war criminals. The House of Lords was opposed to that, and the Commons in favour on two occasions. The second was the European Parliamentary Elections Act of 1999, and that was a rather esoteric debate in a way about different systems of proportional representation. The House of Lords wanted a system with more choice of candidate, and the government didn't, and it was passed over their, their opposition. The third was the Sexual Offences Amendment Act of the year 2000, and that lowered the age for homosexual activity to 16, the same as the age for heterosexual activity. And the fourth, most recently, on which have been some court cases, was the Hunting Act of the year 2004, which banned hunting with dogs in England and Wales, and that was passed over the opposition of the House of Lords through the Parliament Act procedure. Now, it's fair to say, as I say, it's only been used four times since 1949, but uh, there must be other occasions when the Lords might have wanted to oppose, but was deterred from doing so because of the Parliament Act. There's a sense in which it's a kind of, it's like nuclear weapons. You can't evaluate their significance from the fact they've not been used. And I think there are lots of occasions when the Lords might have wanted to oppose something but would have sought a compromise with the Commons because they knew they could be overridden. Now, the Lords have voluntarily limited their powers even beyond the Parliament Acts by a convention called the Salisbury Convention, uh, and this has nothing to do with the town of Salisbury, but the Marquess of Salisbury. And uh, it's, this stems from 1945, when the Lords uh, faced a majority Labour government, the Attlee government, a large majority. And as we've seen, the, the, the Lords at that time was predominantly hereditary, 
and uh, dominated by the hereditary peers, dominated by the Conservative Party, and they had to think out their attitude. After all, the Attlee government had been elected with this vast majority. They couldn't resist the people's will. And so they said, voluntarily, that they would not uh, oppose or wreck any government bill which had been in the election manifesto, that, they, that would be deemed to have the approval of the people and the Lords should not uh, interfere with it. Um, now, this is an interesting point, I think, because the opposition parties are now saying this convention depended on a one-party House of Lords, a permanent conservative majority. Now, there isn't now that permanent conservative majority, and therefore the convention should lapse. But the Labour government say, no, no, the convention depends on the fact that the House of Lords is not elected, whatever its composition and therefore the convention should stay. And so you can see some arguments about that going. See, in 1945, the Labour Party was elected with 48% of the vote, and the hereditary peers, peers had an anti-Labour majority of over 500 in the Lords. Now the Labour Party has been elected with 36% of the vote, and no party has a majority at all in the House of Lords. So the argument is the mandate uh, argument no longer works. That's what the opposition parties say. And they say the House of Lords should have the right to reject legislation, even if it's in the government manifesto, because only 36% voted for it. But that's going to be a big argument. However, the government faces a difficulty precisely because, uh, with the abolition of the hereditary peers, the House of Lords has become more assertive. And I don't know whether they appreciated that would happen. Uh, the life peers have all been chosen specifically for the purpose, rather than people who were there as a result of the accident of birth. And they say they have more legitimacy and a greater right to challenge the government, particularly on issues of civil liberties, where they say the government is too populist and ignores the importance of civil liberties. And these issues, the legitimacy of the House of Commons, the role of the Lords in legislation and civil liberties, they will run and run, and I predict they will be the, part of the major areas of political debate in this Parliament. Now, I said there were three um, types of bill, and so far I mentioned two, a money bill and a non-money bill, but the third bill, that's a specific bill, and that's a bill to lengthen the life of Parliament. In other words, say, we, instead of having an election after five years, we'll have it after six or seven. Now, a bill of that kind, the House of Lords has an absolute veto over. The Parliament Acts do not apply to it. And, of course, the purpose of that is to offer protection against a government which wants to alter the electoral laws to its own advantage, to say, well, five years is up, we're not very popular, let's have an election after six or seven. And they can't do that without the House of Lords. And uh, that is a very important function of constitutional protection over a very limited area. And there are some people who say this function ought to be extended. The House of Lords ought to have a veto on other sorts of things where a government may be tempted to... Uh, if you like, stretch the Constitution or fiddle with the Constitution. It's a very important sort of protection. You cannot uh, extend the period of Parliament without the support of the House of Lords. One other area of the House of Lords has a veto not involving legislation. You cannot dismiss a judge without the support of the House of Lords. So if a government says we don't like these judges, they're, part, they're making decisions we don't like, let's get rid of them, you can't do that without the House of Lords. Also important uh, protection. 
But the main power, I suppose, the Lords protect, uh, has is, is one of legislative revision, namely requiring the government to think again. It's limited because it has no power, really, to insist on revision of legislation, but it can make the government think for a little while and perhaps tidy up matters. But I think the main work of the Lords lies in a quite different field, not so much in the legislative field, but in the field of inquiry, and that is um, illustrated by the work of the select committees. Now, there's a very important select committee in the Lords on the European Union, and that looked at European Union legislation uh, from the point of view of how it will affect Britain. Now, this is very tedious and unglamorous work, looking at European Union directives and regulations, and it needs experts, people who are economists, uh, agriculturalists, scientists, lawyers, and so on. And because it's glamorous, unglamorous work, the House of Commons doesn't want to do it and doesn't do it very well. And the House of Commons is very much divided on the issue of Europe between people who think we should be in and people who think we should be out or sceptics and so on. But the House of Lords isn't divided in that way and therefore it can scrutinise legislation and advise the government as to how it will affect this country. And that's very important work which would have to be done by someone uh, probably at greater expense if the House of Lords didn't do it. But you need expert membership for it. Then there's another important committee, uh, the Select Committee on Science and Technology, looking at the effects of scientific and technological developments. And that too contains a sort of people who wouldn't stand for election necessarily, but do perform a valuable function. For example, you have on it physicists, gynecologists, uh, entomologists, chemists, and, and so on, people who've been put in the House of Lords because of their expertise. There's a more recent committee, which I find of particular interest, a select committee on the Constitution to try and look at the effects of constitutional change in a fairly politically neutral way. And again, that's not something the Commons could do very effectively. And um, a former leader of the House of Lords has said that the Lords should not attempt to rival the Commons and whenever it's done so in the past, it has failed because, of course, it's not democratically legitimate. And it usually makes itself ridiculous in the process. What it should do is something quite different because in any well-organized parliamentary system, there's a need and a place for a third element beside efficient government and the operation of representative democracy. And that third element is the bringing to bear of informed or expert public opinion. And it's now one of the principal roles of the Lords to provide this forum for expert public opinion. And as I say, the non-elected nature of the House of Lords offers an opportunity for experts, scientists, economists, lawyers, and so on, people who would not normally be expected to stand for election to the Commons, and they can bring their expertise to bear on legislation. So you may argue that, uh, again, in a perhaps a typically British way, the current composition of the Lords evades this fundamental problem I mentioned at the beginning of finding an accurate principle of representation for a second chamber by saying it shouldn't be a representative chamber at all. It should be a chamber of experts leavened by ex-politicians, but it shouldn't try and rival the Commons in fulfilling representative uh, functions or functions of democratic legitimacy. We've evaded the problem. And that would be uh, the optimistic view of it. That would be the defense of the House of Lords. But, uh, of course, you won't be surprised to hear that there are many people who don't accept that view and they call for reform of the House of Lords and they say it's an anomaly in the modern world to have a legislative chamber which contains not one elected member, not a single elected member. And they say 
nomination itself can't yield any sort of democratic legitimacy, that the current system gives far too much patronage to the Prime Minister and other party leaders. In eight and a half years, Blair has created the precise figure is 292 peers. That is well over one-third of the total membership of the Lords. I say, not all from the Labour Party, it's fair to say that other parts have them. But still, it's a large creation. I think George III might have envied that sort of power. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, in her 11 and a half years, actually created fewer peers, 216 in 11 years, and John Major, 171 in seven years. And people say, and perhaps the strongest representative of this point of view is Tony Benn, this power of patronage is very bad in a modern democracy. It gives the primes too much patronage and encourages too much deference on the part of people who want peerages from the prime minister. And it's a bad thing to have. But furthermore, there is, one has to say, the danger of corruption in all this, in that a number of peerages are given to people who've been party donors. Now, if you read the Times on the 14th of November, the Times pointed out that around one in ten of the life peers created by Tony Blair since he became Prime Minister have been Labour Party donors, and they've contributed in total nearly £25 million to party funds. I think if anyone here has that sort of money, they'll be peers fairly quickly. Um, but, um, and it's fair to say, I quickly say, this is not just a matter of the Labour Party, that the other parties too have nominated for peerages people whose main qualification seems to be that they've given large sums of money to the political parties. Um, and they would say, you, you, you know, you can buy a peerage like an, you should buy a peerage like an honest man. Um, but um, you may say it erodes public trust <coughs> to promote people to the legislature solely because they have given these large sums of money to a party. And many people would argue, <coughs> and I think I'm one of them, that uh, political parties shouldn't rely on large donations from wealthy individuals. Uh, and the, the answer, uh, which I want to talk about in a future lecture, would be some system of public funding of political parties and a consequent limit on large donations to parties. And that's a subject for another lecture. But I think this issue of the House of Lords and the funding of political parties is closely related. Because I suppose the party leaders would say, unless we've got this sweetener, we can't raise the money to perform our functions. We need these millionaires who'll give us lots of money, but they won't give money for nothing. They'll give it for a peerage. So uh, all this provides powerful arguments for reforming the Lords. And the trouble is there's no real agreement on how it should be reformed. Now, uh, when the first Parliament Act was passed in 1911 by a Liberal government of the day, there was a preamble to it which had no effect in law, but said it was an interim measure, and they said it is intended to substitute for the House of Lords, as it at present exists, a second chamber constituted on a popular instead of a hereditary basis. And the Liberals at that time said that further reform of the House of Lords brooks no delay, but uh, it certainly has brooked a bit of delay because we don't have a House of Lords on a popular basis. Perhaps, perhaps it was a politician's promise that they were giving. Now, <clears throat> in 1999, Tony Blair set up a Royal Commission on Reform of the House of Lords, and it was chaired by Lord Wakeham, a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, and cynical people said that Lord Wakeham was chosen because it was known he wasn't in favour of fundamental reform. But uh, its report, in any case, in the year 2000, did recommend some reform, 
and said that a minority, a significant minority of the upper house should be elected on a regional basis by proportional representation. The majority would still be appointed, but they said that all peers, including party peers, should be appointed by the Appointments Commission and not by the Prime Minister. And they also said the party composition of the Lords should reflect the balance of votes, votes not seats, in the most recent general election, roughly proportional. Now, uh, they also said all members should serve for just 15 years and they wouldn't be eligible to stand for the Commons for 10 years after that, so they couldn't use the Upper House as a kind of stepping stone for a career as a professional politician. In other words, you wouldn't have professional politicians in it. Um, now, the trouble is that if you created a chamber uh, with election, that, from the government's point of view, would be more of a nuisance because it would seek to use its powers against the commons, i.e. against the government. And indeed, it would seek to use its powers or perhaps even to extend them because you might say if it has no powers, why should anyone wish to stand for election to it? How can you persuade someone to get elected to a talking shop? Um, and the danger is it would become a kind of consolation prize for people who couldn't get in the Commons or even the European Parliament. And um, you can imagine a local constituency saying, well, poor old Jim, uh, you know, he was defeated for mayor, but he's been a member of the party for many years. We can't send him to the European Parliament. He doesn't like foreigners, but put him in the upper house. And uh, you can see that argument. Now, uh, so this, was, this would be the problem. So the, the, the upper house would ask for an increase of its powers. And that's what happened with the European Parliament. I think there's an analogy. Until 1979, the European Parliament was nominated and not elected. After that year, it was elected. And then it uh, increased its power since it's been elected. And now it has virtually powers of co-decision with the Council of Ministers. It has power over much European legislation. Some people, it's a good thing, a bad thing. But anyway, it's happened. But, you know, would you want co-decision in Britain with the upper house having equal power with the lower? Some people might say yes, some no. But it's a matter to be thought about. And a directly elected House of Lords would have much greater democratic legitimacy, would say it represented public opinion at least as well as the Commons, and some would say if it was elected by proportional representation, they would say it represented people better than the Commons because it was a fairer system. And um, there's a further uh, difficulty that uh, it would reproduce some of the um, things people don't like about the House of Commons, namely the adversarial party political system, uh, point scoring with domination by the party whips and professional politicians. If you had elections, it's a nice thought to think that well, we could elect simply the best people of independent minds to the House of Lords, but in practice the elections would be organised by the political parties, and it's unlikely in large constituencies that independents would be well known enough to get in, so in practice you'd get people chosen by the political parties. Do we really want that sort of thing? The former Prime Minister John Major once said, if the answer is more politicians, you're asking the wrong question. Now, uh, the Wakeham Royal Commission had many witnesses who said that they wanted an elected upper house. It was very important to have that. And the question then was, you, what do you mean like the House of Commons? They said, good heavens, no, we don't want that repeated. We want an upper house without professional politicians or party people. But how are you going to get it? It's not very clear. And, uh, uh, I say, it would therefore uh, appear a difficult thing to achieve. And a Labour uh, cabinet minister in the 1960s, uh, Richard Crossman, said that Labour's policy uh, was 
that an indefensible anachronism is preferable to a second chamber with any real authority. And he said that position was logical but rather reactionary. Well, it may be illogical as well. But. Then you have to ask the question of whether a reformed second chamber would carry out these expert functions I mentioned earlier, dealing with science and technology in Europe and so on. At any rate, the uh, government hasn't accepted the uh, proposition that there should be elected members. It's still open for debate, but I think the more the government thinks about it, the less they like it. And instead of radical reform, therefore, there have been evolutionary reforms of the, of, the, of the types I mentioned, the life peerages, removal of most of the hereditaries, and so on. And there's a current debate going on, and uh, the government and MPs are divided on what should come next. And you may say that uh, liberals in 1911 said that further reform of the House of Lords brooks no delay, and you may say that's the position of the present government, that further reform brooks no delay, but in practice they won't go out of their way to uh, reform it very radically anymore, particularly as a thorn in their side at the moment, and probably more of a thorn than it would be if all the hereditaries were still there. Now, in 1895, a liberal leader, Sir William Harcourt, said, there are two things that you can neither mend nor end. The House of Lords is one, the other is the Pope of Rome. Now, was he right? I mean, not about the Pope of Rome, that's a theology, theology lectures. But was he right about the House of Lords? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's up to you, and I look forward to your questions. For all information please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.